Good morning. Isaiah chapter 9, it's already been read for us in part this morning. Uh, We'll be popping around to a few different places, but of any place we'll stay there the longest. So Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 6 and 7. As we look this morning at Jesus as King. Americans are fundamentally suspicious of monarchies. That's not to say that we don't appreciate uh, the history or the traditions or the pomp and the celebrity, but the fact is we revolted against a king and his kingdom in favor of a government that's elected by us and works for us and um, is comprised of servants and not rulers. And that's why it can be rather alarming when uh, we turn uh, to the Bible and realize that uh, the heavens and the earth were created by a king to be his kingdom, over which man and woman were given dominion. We see this at the end of Genesis chapter 1, where uh, God, the king, Uh, said to the man and woman, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant and every tree. You shall have them for food. And it was so. And God, the king of creation, saw everything that he had made, that is everything that comprised his kingdom, and behold, it was very good. Now that unadulterated, very good state lasted through Genesis 2. But in Genesis 3, all of it changed when two notable things occurred. Uh, First of all, uh, man and woman rebelled against the king of kings and ruined his kingdom. We see that in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. But second, what man and woman ruined, God promised to restore. We see that in verse number 15. So the balance of the Old Testament from that point on reveals God's plan to restore his very good kingdom as well as the identity of the one by whom he would restore it. Now, if we've seen nothing else over the last couple of weeks that is in this series, we have seen at least these two things. Uh, Two weeks ago, We saw that over the course of Old Testament history, many prophets spoke many words on God's behalf. But Jesus was God's last prophet. He he was God's final word. Uh, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 tells us that long ago God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, plural, But in these last days, our days, New Testament days, he has spoken to us by his son, singular. So that was two weeks ago. Uh, One week ago, we saw that also over the course of Old Testament history, many priests 
sacrificed much blood on behalf of human sin. But Jesus is God's last priest, uh, his final mediator. Hebrews 10 verse 12 puts it this way, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That is, since then there has never needed to be, nor will there ever need to be, another sacrifice for sin. That was one week ago. And now we come to this morning, and we begin by acknowledging that, again, over the course of Old Testament history, there were many kings who reigned in God's name. But Jesus is God's last king. He's the king of kings. He's the the Rex Magnus, if you will, the one before whom someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord or King. Because to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord or King, both of the dead and of the living, Romans 14, 9. So Christmas is the annual worldwide reminder of and celebration that Jesus is King. Uh, Just consider how much we sing about it. We've already sung about it this morning but we'll continue to sing about it throughout the season. I'll, I'll start a line and, and you finish it. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. That's right. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. That's right. Commodore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn king. You know, er, er, earlier this week I was talking to Kenny about this morning's theme, and he said as he's been uh, leafing through Christmas carols and hymns this season, he's noticed that that is the predominant theme uh, throughout the Christmas songbook, that Jesus is King. So the main point of this morning's sermon comes to us as a statement that leads to a question. And the statement is simply this, Jesus is King, uh, which is a rather popular statement these days since it's the title of Kanye West's new album that uh, debuted at uh, number one on the Billboard album chart. Jesus is King. And this morning, we'll let God's Word show us how Jesus was revealed as King and how Jesus is described as King. So Jesus is King. And that leads to the question. Is Jesus your king? Now, at that point in first service, Caleb Dana, who's about, how old is Caleb Dana? Five. Cried out, yes. (laughs) So, amen, Caleb. Is Jesus your king? It's one thing to sing it out. It's one thing to sing that Jesus is my king. It's another thing to sincerely believe that Jesus is. Is king. It's, it's one thing to put up a manger scene on the front lawn or on the coffee table at the center of which Jesus is king, but it's another thing to humbly bow down with the shepherds and truly confess in your heart that Jesus is king. So Jesus is king, but is Jesus your king? Uh, that's where we're headed this morning. So let's begin by considering the statement, Jesus is king, and how that's revealed in the Old Testament. For those of you that 
have uh, been following the Bible reading program this year, you may have noticed that Jesus is revealed as king in a progressive manner. So you go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 and God promises in principle to raise up such a king to crush the adversary by whom man and woman were led into sin. Then in 12.1, he promised to uh, 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 bring that king from among the descendants of Abraham. And then in 17.19, he promised to do, throw, uh, do so through Abraham's son Isaac, but not Ishmael. And then in 27.37, he promised to do so through Isaac's son Jacob, but not his son Esau. And then in 49.10, he promised to, promises to do so through Jacob's son Judah and not any one of his 11 other sons. And then in 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12, he promised to raise up a king through Judah's multiple great-grandson, David. And then in Matthew chapter 1, God fulfilled his promise to raise up a king by revealing, in a genealogy no less, revealing the king to be Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew 1, verse 1. Now, many people consider genealogies to be boring, uh, Bible genealogies doubly boring, they're to be skipped over, but, but this Bible genealogy is anything but boring. It's assuring. And it's assuring for a couple of reasons. For one, it assures us that Jesus of Nazareth was a legitimate king. He had a legitimate right to the throne. Uh, the legitimacy of royalty is always tested by genealogy. Uh, that's why the book and now website, Burke's Peerage, Burke's Peerage is such an important resource for legitimizing the royalty of Europe. Further, Bible genealogy assures us that the Old Testament isn't uh, just this uh, a dusty old book that's uh, locked in the annals of time, but rather is a, a record that, that reveals how God's work then affects us now thereby helping us to see that history is neither random nor circular, but is rather linear. That is, it's going someplace. It's taking us through this life and on into the next life. So that the New Testament begins with the genealogy should elicit gratitude and not groaning, since it reveals that God had a plan to rescue us from our rebellion. A plan to reveal Jesus as king in a progressive manner. A plan seated at the outset of human history, taking root throughout the Old Testament. A plan that comes to bud at Christmas, comes to blossom at Easter, and then full bloom on the last day. Now, not only is Jesus revealed as king in a progressive manner, but he's also described as king in a personal one. Now, to be sure, the Old Testament reveals uh, some strikingly awesome descriptions of that king, especially in Daniel chapter 7. 
as one standing before the, the august and fiery ancient of days being given dominion over the kingdom originally entrusted to and ruined by our multiple great-grandparents back in Genesis 3. But while he is, in the dictionary sense, I guess, terrible, he isn't just that. Because the prophet Isaiah famously describes that coming king in terms that are wonderfully accessible. In fact, they were read for us earlier this morning. Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, let's take a closer look at uh, these four things about this king. First of all, he is a wonderful counselor. Uh, the wonder of his counsel is set in contrast to the folly of human counsel, which is described throughout the first half of this book for its absence of any spiritual dimension, component, or um, consideration. The wisest human counsel always includes God's spiritual counsel, and that by way of his word. Uh, for years, I've advised students who are looking for wise counsel to sit down with somebody who knows them and knows God's word. In, in that way, um, you can get great counsel, and that goes not only for students, but for anyone. The, the, the great value of God's counsel is clearly revealed, I think, in a couple of passages. Uh, in fact, well worth noting if you're taking notes this morning. The first one is Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah 17.9, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And of course, the answer is no one. The other passage is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews 4, 12, which says, For the word of God is living and active, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that word discerning means judging or, or refereeing. That, that is, when it comes to this world and our place in it, God's word is always making the right call. They never have to go to New York to review it. He's lifetime on the field. He gets it right every time. So how assuring to know that even though we can't entirely understand ourselves, even with the help of, of another person employing mere human wisdom, King Jesus does and will always guide his people as their wonderful counselor. Number two. He is called a mighty king. And his might ensures that the unconfessed evil throughout human history will be punished on the last day. Great or small, known or unknown, recent or dated, understood or misunderstood. Uh, uh, just look at the news uh, online today, and you can see there's never been a greater cry for justice 
than there is right now. But you know what? The Lord loves justice. He will never forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. Psalm 37, 27. Further, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Galatians 6, 7. So this mighty God ensures that on the last day, unconfessed evil, even evil done to you, even evil done to you will be punished. But his might also ensures that confessed evil will be forgiven, entirely wiped out. Uh, When I confess my sins to a fellow sinner, I gratefully receive their forgiveness. But when I confess my sin to God, sometimes it's hard to accept his forgiveness because I'm so aware of his holiness and my unworthiness. Maybe you feel that way too. That's why I'm especially grateful for the words of John Oswald, who commenting on this verse wrote this, this king will have God's true might about him, power so great that it could absorb all the evil that can be hurled at it, even evil that I hurl at it, until there is none left to hurl. And why I'm even more grateful for God's own word that assures me whenever our heart condemns us, whenever my heart condemns me, God is greater. He's mightier than our heart. And he knows everything. 1 John 3.20. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. So King Jesus is a mighty God who's just and loving. Third, this king is an everlasting father. I I don't want you to ever pattern your view of God as your father after your human father. Don't, Don't do that. It can be tempting, especially if you think your dad hung the moon. Rather, do pattern your view of God after your heavenly father, and that according to his word who time and again, down through history, has proven himself to be a compassionate father and a loving father and a rescuing father and a cherishing father and a forgiving father. I got uh, verses to substantiate all of this. A father that you can call daddy. Mark 17, Mark 14, Romans 8, Galatians 4. This everlasting father is the daddy you've always dreamed of. He is. But unlike your earthly father, whom you only have for a time, your heavenly father is one whom you have with you throughout time and for all time. I remember the night, I think I maybe have mentioned this before, but I I remember the night in tears, it's probably in my mid-40s, when I asked my dad over the telephone, what am I going to do when you're gone? (laughs) Well, 
he's gone now, and I can tell you this, that my dad's greatest gift to me was actively modeling reliance upon our Heavenly Father through the good times and the not-so-good times. And men, I want to challenge all the men here. You can be that kind of father to your children, and even if you have no children, to the children of others, especially here in the Grace family. In this way, you can model to a hurting world the healthy, loving paternity of our everlasting Father. So Jesus the King is an everlasting Father. He can steady the home. He can steady the church. He can even steady society. Fourth, this king is called the Prince of Peace, Prince of Wholeness, the, 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 the Prince of, of Completeness. Not because he came and unrolled some plans for peace, but because he himself is our peace, Ephesians 2.14. You see, peace isn't found in a philosophy or a political party or uh, uh, some kind of profession after which we aspire. Rather, peace is found in a person who calls people to himself. The person who would come as a child. I love what one scholar writes when he said, Isaiah frequently indicates that God was powerful enough to destroy his enemies in an instant. And yet again and again when the prophet comes to the heart of the means of deliverance, a childlike face peers out at us. God is strong enough to overcome his enemies by becoming vulnerable, he writes. Transparent, humble, the only hope, in fact, for turning enmity into friendship. And not only would peace come as a child, but he would come as a child for us. He came for us, for you. Uh, To be sure, many come on the scene promising things for us who never deliver, But that's why it's important to notice that this child came as a son. In fact, that's really the most important thing in that little section there, that he came as a son because he's a son in a royal line that truly qualified him to be the Prince of Peace then and down through history. And as such, a person who can reconcile men and women with God and with one another. How fitting then that this description of peace comes at the climax of this description since it gives us great hope for a better day that's described for us in verse number seven. Take a look. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal or the red-hot, unrelenting preoccupation of the Lord of hosts will do this. And he did. Just as we heard read earlier when it was announced to Mary by the angel, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus and he'll be great, he'll be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. They're they're the human qualifications for being king. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. They're the divine qualifications to be king. So the genealogy of Christmas proves that Jesus was a human king, 
a rightful human king, and the cross and the empty tomb of Easter prove that he was a divine king. He is truly Lord of heaven and Lord of earth. Jesus is king. And if he's king, that begs the question, is he your king? Now, there are many things that can keep one from embracing Jesus as king. I want to mention just three. But first, a dramatic pause. And the first one is thinking of Jesus as he is portrayed in the culture at large and not as he is portrayed in the Bible. So, for instance, consider the night on which Jesus was born. Was it a silent night? Well, I'm, I'm sure that a great portion of it was, but was it entirely silent? The way we sing about it so often makes it sound that way. And, and was the announcement made to, to this collection, little collection of rosy-cheeked shepherds looking over a hillside of, of little cotton balls with a modest uh, combo of angels playing trumpets in the heaven? as portrayed on so many Christmas cards? Is that what I'm being called to to stake my life on? Well, how does the Bible portray it? In Luke chapter two, we read the following. First, there is a messenger who appears in white hot magnificence, the glory of which falls down and around the shepherds. And then there are the shepherds who aren't described as you know, pulling their outer cloak up over their faces and looking into the sky, but rather being overwhelmed with fear, literally mega fear. In fact, you can believe that they were prostrate on the ground. And finally, there was a multitude of the heavenly host who weren't peering through a little white hole set against a big, dark backdrop of sky, but rather numbered as few as thousands upon thousands and as many as a sum too great to count. Daniel 7, Hebrews 12. And they appeared in martial array because the Greek word for host is is the term, it's a military term for a band of soldiers. So with the angel, there, there was this massive army in cosmic regalia crying out glory to God in the highest. That's how it came down on Christmas Day. Now, get this right. I'm not down on Christmas cards, all right? But art can be limiting. That can't be contained on a Christmas card. The way it happened is that and more, in a way truly suited for a king, the king of kings. Another thing that can keep us from embracing Jesus as king is thinking of Jesus as he was then, not as he is now. A few months ago, a college buddy of mine by the name of Chris told me a fascinating story about being reunited with a friend of his named Albi, a fellow with whom he shared a bunk in a summer at camp in New England when the two were just teenagers. And those of you that have been to camp know how those 
camp friendships go, they become uh, uh, close, uh, quite fast. And of course, Chris and Albie became good friends. But once camp ended that summer, their 14th year, they were prohibited from ever being reunited. Until within the last couple of years, and Chris heard that Albie was coming to town. So he made an effort, Chris did, to reach out to Albie. An effort that wasn't all that easy because it required that Chris follow uh, certain protocols. Because you see, the Albie of the 70s is now Albert II, Crown Prince of Monaco, one of the wealthiest monarchs in the world. And Chris told me that uh, uh, that reunion did happen. And it happened because when he contacted uh, Albie's people, that's the name he used. He said, yeah, I'd like to meet Albie. And they said, oh, you, you do know him, don't you? Well, in the same way, we, we tend to think of Jesus as he was, as a baby, as a boy, as a man who went to a lot of parties, told a lot of good stories, healed people, uh, was a great uh, teacher, one after whom to pattern your life, all that kind of stuff. But our post-Easter sermon series from earlier this year on the ascension of Christ tried to correct that way of thinking. Because we need to think of Jesus not as he was incarnate, but as he is now, high and lifted up, victorious over sin and death, powerful over principalities and powers, exalted over kings and kingdoms, generous in mercy and grace. We need to think of him as the apostle John saw him in Revelation chapter 1 with a long robe and a gold sash and white hair and flaming eyes and shining feet and a roaring voice and piercing words and a radiant face that caused John to fall at his feet as though dead. That's who Jesus is. But this is also Jesus. John went on to write, but he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forever, and I have the keys to death and Hades. That's how to think of Jesus And yet there's a third and final thing that can keep us from embracing Jesus as king. Just like the first man and woman, it's by thinking of yourself as king, wearing God's crown on your head, remaining in rebellion against him, trying to run God's kingdom as if it were your own. There's a scene in the movie, uh, Chariots of Fire, in which the uh, British Olympian, Eric Little, is talking to his coach, Sandy McGrath, about the kingdom of God. You may remember this scene. Eric says, Sandy, the kingdom of God is not a democracy. The Lord never seeks re-election. There are no referenda on which road to take. There's, There's one right, there's one wrong, one absolute ruler. Sandy replied, a dictator, you mean? Little said, I but a loving and a benign dictator. Now, even that word dictator causes us 
to recoil because we've never seen a benign or a loving dictator, one whose description begins as wonderful counselor and ends as prince of peace. But that's who Jesus is. So, if Jesus is king over your life, then may this Christmas find you celebrating to the full his saving and glorious counsel and might and paternity and peace. But if Jesus is not king over your life, then may you find yourself exchanging gifts with Jesus. May may you take that crown off of your head and hand it back to him to whom it rightfully belongs and receive from him an exchange membership into his royal family and eternal kingdom where the psalmist tells us there is life and fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That would make this Christmas one to remember. Let's pray. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. So Lord, in the silence of this moment, may you transform rebel souls into ones that are meek and thereby suited to receive you. What a Christmas present that would be. I pray that not a person in this room goes without it. And I do so in the name of Jesus, our great gift-giving King. Amen.